As we come to today's study in Confidence in Christ, I want to remind you where we left off last week. And we left off last week talking about our identification with Christ. The fact that the Bible tells you that you are crucified with Christ. That means that when Jesus died on the cross to, uh, you know, about, what is it? 2,000 years ago, roughly, when Jesus died on that cross, as far as God's concerned, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were right there with him. When Jesus was buried, his dead body lay in that grave for that three days, or we might you know, count it a night, a day, and a night, but in the Jewish reckoning of time, that's three days, three parts of a day is three days. Um, you were there with him. It was a very crowded tomb, even though he was the only one in it. You were raised with Christ, and when Christ was raised, so you were raised, and now you have access to walk in that newness of life. When Jesus Christ was ascended, as we see and celebrate on, on uh, when we read the first chapter of Acts, and we see the ascension of Christ, when he lifted up from the earth and was covered by a cloud and translated into heaven, so were you. And finally, when Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ, is seated and now uh, is living out his session at the right hand of the Father, in this time, in this interim period, we find that you were seated with him. So another way we could look at this is that you could see yourself as, as a human being walking along in 2000 whatever that you're living in now, 2020, 2018. I even just shudder to say 2020 just because every I feel like every time someone says 2020, something terrible happens. And that's what's been going wrong. But anyway, you're, you're walking around and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and God spiritually reckons you or accounts you as being having been rather on the cross of Jesus Christ. And then God reckons you having been buried with Christ and now God reckons the spiritual you, the true immaterial you is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places in Christ. So hopefully that is a clear enough picture that while physically you still go along your daily day-to-day -day life you still maintain your uh, regular identity you don't become a believer and need to get a new driver's license or anything to that effect you're the same person you were uh, physically and historically but your spiritual history according to God the author of reality has changed and you now have this new position in Christ. While you live here on earth, you live with your eyes fixed by faith on what he has given you, on where he has hidden his life together with you. And so, as we started our discussion on or on confidence and on living with confidence, we saw that there was no reason to have confidence in ourselves. There was every reason to have confidence in God, but we had a problem, and that's why we needed and need to have confidence at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because our sin problem, while we could be perfectly confident in God, his character, his ability, his power, we were on the wrong side of him as unrighteous sinners. And the cross is the place where our sin was dealt with. And then we saw that we can have confidence in our salvation. Having confidence in our salvation, we learned that we can have confidence in this position which Christ has given us. Or we might say this identification that we have. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So we ended our last week's study with this idea that you have a new life story. Your identification with Christ affects the first big question when it comes to living with confidence, which is, who am I, right? Most people go through middle school, and uh, middle school tends to be some of the most difficult and ugly years because people are wondering, who am I? You don't know yet. Are you going to be tall? Are you going to be short? Are you going to be athletic? Are you going to be strong? Are you going to be smart? Are you going to be a fool? Are you going to be a winner? Are you going to be a loser? You just don't know, right? And so there's a lot of underconfidence and insecurity having to do with middle school. And the funny thing is that it doesn't ever, for most people, it doesn't get any better. They just learn how to more creatively hide their insecurity and their uncertainty about their identity. But as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, who is built on and whose understanding and view of yourself in the world is built on the word of God, you're told exactly who you are. And that's what we studied last week. You are who you are in Jesus Christ. 
So when you look in the mirror each morning, hopefully you begin your day by answering this question, I am the redeemed child of God. I am in Christ. I am not who my uh, workmates, my colleagues, my friends, my neighbors think I am. I am who the living God declared me to be. And the living God declared you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, to be permanently and perfectly positioned in his son. Righteous, holy, endued and imbued with purpose and meaning, growing towards that ultimate perfection to which he has predestined you, that is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, right? That's what predestination is all about. God having set a destiny out in advance for anyone who would trust in Jesus Christ. So, Question one, and of course we're learning to appropriate this, to to put this and let this affect our thinking often, but question one is the most important question to answer if you're going to live with the confidence that God intends for believers to live with, with which God intends the believer to live. There we go. Now I didn't dangle a preposition. This study covers the next major question, which is what are your resources? So the two questions you might ask that might give you confidence in any situation is, one, am I the right person for the job? Am I the person who should be here? Am I qualified to be here? And the next question you might ask is, what are my resources to deal with this situation? And so today, we're going to kind of cross over both. But before we start, we have to note, note something very important, and that is that all of this comes as a result of, or through, or by, we might say, the grace of God. Now, grace is a word that is uh, often used. It has lots of different usages in our uh, world. We can talk about a, a dancer who is graceful, or the, you know, the grace and power of, if you ever watch a, a fly fisherman who's an expert fly fisherman casting his line, see the grace and power of that line as it goes back and snaps forward and lays itself perfectly on the water. You say, oh, what grace. And we notice that grace in the case of the dancer or the fisherman is something that they worked very hard to, to, to get that grace. And that is not what God's word means when it says, talks about grace. When God's word talks about grace, when you see grace in the Bible, it is a gift. And we oftentimes even double that up and say, it's a free gift. But that in and of itself is a ridiculous thing to say, right? I mean, it's important in these days. But the reason why it's ridiculous is that it's redundant. If you have a paid-for gift or a, pay, a gift for money, then it's no longer a gift. It becomes an exchange, right? So a free gift is, is a redundancy. And the reason why we use that phrase oftentimes, free gift, is because it is so hard for us as humans to wrap our mind around the idea of a real, honest-to-goodness, no-strings-attached gift. It's so difficult for us, but what we're going to find, we're going to look at some uh, verses uh, that, that, that uh, talk about this, but you are no longer under law, but under grace. You are under grace as the new system of your life. And this is important. Let's, uh, let's, let's look at some grace notes. Some verses on grace. Romans 3.24 says, we're being justified freely. Why? How? By his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It was by the grace of God, the free gifting of God, not by his grace and a little bit of your work, because that wouldn't make sense. It would cease to be grace. Not by his grace and a little bit of obedience, because that wouldn't be grace. You are justified freely by his grace. You are saved by his, his willingness to give freely. Uh, Romans 4.16 says, Therefore, it is of faith that might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are in the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. So again, this idea that the faith is according to what? To grace. We are living, growing. What I want, the picture I want to paint to you is that our lives are now holy and entirely fully under grace. Romans 5.2 says, the, through whom we also have access by faith into this, what? Grace in which we stand. This word, rooted. 
in which we're, we're established. We stand, we stand as Christians in God's grace. You are saved by God's grace. You stand by God's grace. And, for, and finally, Romans 6.14 alluded to before. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this gives us the dichotomy. You see, we're not meant to be living day to day under a law or a law-like system. Not just the law of Moses, the Old Testament law that was intended for Israel. That's not what he's limiting his conversation to. He's talking about the principle of law in general. And Romans 7 is all about what happens when he tries as a Christian, as a believer, to live under law. And he says, a wretched man that I am. Until he learns what it means. He's learning what it means to live under grace. Let's look at a couple more of these verses about grace. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. It is by the grace of God and his sacrifice, his becoming poor and dying a death on the cross, that you become spiritually rich, spiritually wealthy. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God has made all. Uh, is to make all grace abound to you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of every good work. So how are you sufficient and abundant? How are you going to live a life filled with every good work? Well, it's because his, his grace abounds towards you. Your sufficiency day by day is never in yourself, never in your growing strength, wisdom, or ability. It is always in, ultimately, the grace of God. And he said, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's grace is sufficient for you to live every day and every moment of your life. Ephesians 1, 6 says to the praise that we exist, we're saved is the picture, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Grace is, the, God's grace rather, is the beginning, middle, and end of the believer's walk. And that's difficult. That's tough. Because God's grace is unlike anything else we've ever known. All we've known is life under law either learning to live as a lawbreaker or trying to live as a law keeper, all we understand on the human level, because we are all limited, finite, and fallen, is exchanges, petty exchanges for good or for ill, where we come out the winner or the loser. We don't know what it's like. In fact, we have to radically change everything about our perception of life in order to come to a full understanding of what it means to live under grace. And that's why man-made religion is so frequently so legalistic is because grace, the grace of God, is a terrifying, shocking thing that never leaves at a single point any room for anything but the glory of God. It is all of God's grace and giving. And our life as a Christian is learning to live in a moment-by-moment reliance, understanding, and trust in the matchless grace of God. So as we look for a definition of grace, more than a, the simple definition of a no-strings-attached gift, I found this, uh, this one years ago, and I've liked it. Chester McCalley, I think, is the uh, Bible teacher that was first to kind of pen this in its form like this. It might have been tweaked along the way. But God's grace is the unlimited, unmerited favor of God based upon the perfectly adequate work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is a very specific Biblical theological definition. But this is what it means. God's unlimited, the grace of God is giving in Christ is without boundary or limit. You can't break out of it. Once you've received it, it is forever the encompassing nature and way in which you're meant to live. It is by its very nature unmerited. You can't earn it. And so earning it or you look like Paddington. Earning it or or doing something else to try to pay God back shows a lack of understanding of how amazing God's grace is. It's unlimited. It's entirely unmerited favor of God. Now, how many of us 
are plagued. Even today, even after years of trusting and walking with Christ, are plagued with a viewpoint that God is somehow against us. That he knows the inner thoughts, your deepest sins, your most frightening and darkest hour, your greatest failures, and he wants to get you. How many of us, well, let's just be honest, all of us at one point or another are going to fall back into that, that way of viewing God. Why? Well, because it's natural. Because it's perfectly right. In our own standing, we only, as we saw in our previous studies, we only have the ability. We're only worthy of God's wrath. We're only worthy of God's punishment. But now we've been put in this new place where we don't relate to God any longer on the basis of our actions. We relate to God on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so now, if you're a believer today, you are always lavished with his favor, his positive intention and attention, based upon what? The adequate, perfectly adequate work. What Jesus Christ did on the cross broke the power of sin forever. It was perfectly adequate because of his eternality, his deity, and his perfect humanity. And thus, he could make a once and for all payment for all of the sin, all of the failure, all of the shortcoming, and not just to forgive you, give you mercy, but in grace, give you everything that you need for life and godliness in the person of Jesus Christ by his work on the cross. So, today, this is all the preamble. Today, we are going to fly through some amazing things. You have a larger list in your handout. Uh, That one was um, put together by a a theologian named Hamden Keithley III, Um, but it is is reduced from the systematic theology of Lewis Berry Chafer uh, in his Soteriology volume, and it's 34 things that are true of you, all by God's grace, the moment you believe. So many people read their Bible and see nothing but a list of commands. In fact, I remember at least in the early days of my Christianity, that's pretty much what I read my Bible looking for. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? What is it that you want me to not do? And it's not to say that we might not uh, have moments where we want to find out uh, what God's viewpoint is on a certain matter and look to the word in that way. But the chief revelation of the New Testament is is not filled with the things that God wants you to do or not do. The moral character of God is, of course, replete throughout Scripture. But the the central revelation of the New Testament epistles, the, the parts that were written directly to us, are talking about what Christ did. And what that means to you. And what that means to me as a believer. And so what we find is when you put your faith in Christ, these statements that we so quickly brush over because they don't come with a command very frequently are what are meant to shape our view of ourself and help us understand what it is that God has done for us. So the first thing that we find is that we are placed into the eternal plan of God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are placed into that eternal plan. For that, we go to Romans 8, 29 through 33. I recognize that this, uh, this, these passages oftentimes bring to mind a sense of, of uh, hesitation in some theologically, but read it as Paul intended, or hear it as Paul intended it, not to put forth some uh, strange theological idea, but to let you know what you've been brought up and caught up in in Jesus Christ. Starting from verse 29, it says, Uh, Let's start with 28 because it's just fun. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ... When you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were swept up into the positive plan of God. You were swept up into the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and included in that plan of salvation. What precedes what is really not material for this moment. But God brought you into his plan 
in that time. Going to, back to Ephesians, which was our, uh, our reading came out of today. In Ephesians 1.5. You see, he has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Predestined means to set a destiny out beforehand, to set a horizon out beforehand. And so before the ages of time, God said that anyone who places his faith in my son will have this destiny to be adopted, to be placed into the family of God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But what we want to focus on here is that the minute you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were brought into the larger plan of God's redemption and salvation for all of planet Earth. We all know what it's like to, to be the third wheel, right? You come along and, and whether it's, you know, everyone's working and has a job and you don't quite know what you're supposed to do in that situation, you know, you're just kind of there, you're just sort of an accessory, right? It's a terrible feeling as you just stand there being slightly in the way and hoping just not to cause any problems because you're of no use. Well, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you stopped being that. And your whole life was, in, in, was given meaning. And you were placed into God's entire redemptive plan. Not only that, when you place your uh, faith in Christ, we find ourselves to be totally and completely reconciled unto him. 2 Corinthians 5 18 through 19 gives us this picture. And when we think about reconciliation, I want us to note that our picture of reconciliation in our modern culture does not do justice to the biblical idea of reconciliation. So if we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us the word of reconciliation. Reconciled three times in that passage. And reconciliation in the human standpoint, especially in our modern world, we talk about reconciliation. We're talking about like if we have a fight and then we come together again and I say, hey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You say, no, no, I was, I was also wrong. I was out of line too. And then we've reconciled, right? That is not reconciliation from the biblical perspective. Reconciliation actually is not just kissing and making up. It involves change. It involves one party, humanity, who is wrong, who is sinful, who has failed, and God, through his work in Jesus Christ, reconciling us, that is changing us into being right again. We were wrong, we are out of line. He transforms us, he makes us right again and reconciles us unto God. So we find that God is both the one who did the reconciling, by restoring us in Christ, and then reconciled us to himself. So it is his action to us or upon us, changing us in our identification from our identification with Adam to our identification with Christ, and now we are permanently, perfectly, rightly related to him through his ministry of reconciliation. I want you to note as we go through these, look, scan the passage, scan the context, you will not find any hint of, well, on your good days... This is what happened to you in Christ. Never once. You will never once find this is true of you in Christ until you blow it. It's not there. This is, these are, all of these things and many, many more are descriptions of anyone who's placed their faith in Christ. This is about how great our salvation is and it is ours forever. We are forever reconciled to the God of the universe. Next, we find we are forever rede redeemed by the God of the universe. Redeemed has the sense of bought back or purchased back. It can be, an, uh, it's actually used in both senses in the Bible. Uh, there's a couple words for redemption. And one has the sense of being freed or redeemed from having been captured at war. 
or captured in some sense. And so the way that this would work is two nation states would come together and they would battle and someone would capture the other's king. And rather than kill him, it was far better to demand an incredibly high ransom to bankrupt your opposing nation and make you richer and sell that king back. And then that king would be uh, redeemed. Apolutron, it was redeemed out of their slavery, out of their captivity. And it says that God redeemed us in that way, but also we're told that we are redeemed in the sense of um, ex agarazzo or agarazzo. The agora was the marketplace. So that ex agarazzo means we were bought out of the slave market of sin. Both concepts there in the Bible, uh, giving us a picture of God, or rather of us as being sinful and apart from God, and God buying us back unto himself, never to be returned. Um, we can go to Colossians 1.14 for that picture. Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have it. You have the redemption. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what God has given you in Christ is always yours. You're forever bought back and he's not selling again. Romans 8.1 tells us that in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Not some, not a little, not a, not a bit. There is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul in Romans 6 had uh, discovered what it meant to walk in means of their position. In Romans 7, struggled because he tried to live according to the law. In Romans 8, he finally realizes that in Christ, there is no condemnation. In Christ, there is no condemnation because Christ paid it all. As the old hymn tells us, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Not owe in the sense of paying him back. Owe in the sense that he's the one who did it all. And I did none of it. So Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation. Will there be a judgment for believers? Absolutely. At the Bema, we will be judged with a view towards reward. But at that judgment, there will be no condemnation. There can be no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus paid for all of the sin at the cross. And if God is just, and Scripture assures us he is, there can be no double jeopardy wherein he exacted the payment the righteous payment from the gift of jesus christ in his life and then exacts it again at any level from the believer who has been bought with that precious blood john 5 24 is another beautiful uh, kind of whole salvation verse and is always worth giving a look to Jesus here speaking, uh, speaking says, oops. here speaking says, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. There is no judgment left for the believer's sins because all of the believer's sins were permanently paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ. We find that we are related to God through propitiation. Propitiation is one of those fancy five-point college words. Um, propitiation means satisfaction. It means that God's righteousness, God's ultimate and perfect righteousness that would destroy anything that was un imperfect or unrighteous simply by its perfection is satisfied in the working of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 24 through 26, sorry, 3, 24 through 26 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, God overlooked sins, knowing that the time would come when his son would die and shed his blood on the cross, thus paying the eternal price for sins past, before the cross, 
current to the cross and future from the cross. That perfect payment rests on his infinite and eternal being. And thus, we are safe, or rather, God's righteousness is satisfied, or he is propitiated through that. And only Jesus Christ as God himself could propitiate or satisfy God. First John 2.2, 2, of course, a very famous uh, and hopefully familiar verse. It says, and he, he himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not, our, our, for our, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Did you catch that? This is one of the verses that destroys some of the bad thinking that comes forth from uh, five-point Calvinism and, and uh, some other flawed systems, right? Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, but not only ours, but for the whole world. Does it mean that no sins are, or that nobody will pay for their sins? No, anybody who refuses the payment of Jesus Christ continues to uh, bear the burden of their own sin, to keep the identification with their own sin. But Christ's eternal sacrifice has the ability to cover the sins of every person. The power is there because he is limitless in his grace and power. His righteousness is propitiated in Christ. Next we find our sins are removed. Just jump a little bit back to 1 Peter 2.24. tells us, He who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Our sins are removed by, the, uh, by his work on the tree. They're removed from us. God can no longer see them on our account or on our person because of the work of Jesus Christ. You have died to them in Christ. You are separated from them in Christ. And it would be ridiculous for us to want to live in sin or choose to live in sin. It is ridiculous whenever a believer chooses to walk by means of their flesh. It's just spiritual insanity. It's silliness. God's grace is still there to cover it for certain. However, it is just absurdity for a believer to live and walk in sin. Romans 5.24 also gives us this same idea. You got 425, that's better. That's ideal. 425 it is. <laughs> it says, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification? Your sins are removed from you. Not because of how great you are, but because of how wonderful the Lord Jesus Christ is. Next, we find that we are vitally joined to Jesus Christ. We're not going to go over these verses um, because we have already. It was the study, the focus of our last study. You are vitally and personally, positionally conjoined with Jesus Christ on the spiritual level in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating. That's what it's talking about. Uh, Galatians 2.20. It's saying he was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Sorry. It is not I live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What is he saying? How do I get by day to day? By trusting continually in the person and work in Jesus, of Jesus Christ, by trusting in his grace and plan for me. Next we find that in Christ we are free from the law. Not just from the law, but the principle of law um, altogether. This principle of punishments and rewards is no longer the principle of our lives. We are now dominated by life and the Spirit of God. We're dominated now by our relationship with the Lord. Romans 7, 4 says, Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. You are now freed from that life 
of do it again, try again, get up and try harder spiritual failure. And free to live by the grace and the spirit of God. Romans 6.14, which we've already discussed. Not only that, John 1.12 gives us assurance that we are also called again entirely by his grace and entirely by his doing and no working of our own children of god we are a child of god in the family of god verse 12 of chapter 1 says but as many as received him to those he gave the right to become children of god clarification to those who believed in his name when you trusted in Jesus' name, and that's John's way of saying you believed in all that he was and that he said he was going to do, he believed that he was the Son of God and that he died for sin, you became a child of God. That means that you were remade in the likeness of God or maybe restored to the image of God in which you were meant to be. That means that you're part of the family and you have all the protections and rights and authority of a family member in God's unit, of, of a familial unit. Every day, wherever you go, that is yours. That is who you are. Going to 1 John 3, 2, we see the same principle being used or being uh, displayed for us. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we, shall, uh, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I love this verse. First of all, it tells you, and John's, the believers to whom John was writing, they were struggling. Read the rest of the epistle. They're having some tough times. They were struggling spiritually to grow. And yet he says, you are, we are right now children of God. Isn't that the great thing about children? When you have a child, like, there's, there's no way that the father takes that child the moment they're born and looks at him and goes, ooh, uh, can you put it back? You can't put it back. It is, it's a, it's a one-way process. It comes out, it does not go back. It cannot be undone. You might be able to die, but you can't be unborn. And it doesn't matter what happens in your life, you will always be the son or daughter of your father and mother. Period. Nothing can change that physical fact. And so when God wants us to understand how permanent that relationship in which he brought us into, he said, well, think about birth. Think about the connection between a mother and her child, or between a father and his child. You are, we are children of God. And then he says something really perplexing and interesting. He says, it's not been yet revealed what we shall be. We don't know yet John didn't know yet. We don't know yet what our glorified bodies are yet to be like. But we do know something. We know that when he's revealed, we're going to be like him. And then the really enigmatic statement that I love, he says, for we shall see him as he is. Do you see the causative nature of that? We will be like him at the last of all things because we'll finally see him clearly, which I take to mean as a, as a secondary application that as you see him as he is, as revealed through the word, in that way you are being conformed to his image and made more like him day by day until the exclamation point on the sentence of your spiritual destiny finally comes and you're face to face with your Lord and you're made like unto him. That's an exciting prospect, isn't it? Whether you die at a ripe old age, surrounded by loved ones in a hospital bed, happily singing hymns as you breathe your last breath, or you die unknown and unseen in a mud in a ditch filled with your own vomit, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you come to be face to face with him, you will be made like him. And the one with the noble and beautiful death and the one with the uh, ugly and debased death will say at the same time, it was all God's doing. It was all Christ's work. It was all to his glory. And how unworthy I am. 2 Corinthians 5.17, as we've looked at before, tells us that you are a new crea creation, new creature in Christ. 
Everyone who believes in Jesus is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. You are made new. You are a part of the new heavens and the new earth taking up occupancy here in this old heavens and old earth. You are adopted. Now, we think of adoption as, um, as a process done for children. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens, but someone takes a child that's not biologically their own and they take them into their house and they, they, um, they choose to love them and raise them and care for them as their own. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's not at all what the Bible has in mind when it talks about adoption. Don't get me wrong. It is a great thing. It's a wonderful Christian thing. But when the Bible talks about adoption, that's not what it's talking about. When the Bible talks about adoption, it's talking about the very well-known Roman political thing that happened, that when you were a, a young man, or uh, yeah, a person in the family, you were not considered a part of the family until you were adopted, Huiathesia placed, a son placed in that family. Up until that point, the father could disown you, he could kill you, he could do whatever he wanted, but once you were placed as a son, once you were adopted, you were on the books, you were a fully-fledged adult member of the family, you had access to the family's accounts, your old history was wiped out, and you were now a part of this new family. And Roman uh, people, could uh, Roman families, specifically those of means, could adopt anyone they want. It was, of course, expected that you would adopt your biological sons, but it wasn't guaranteed. In many cases... Um, Throughout, and even one of uh, the emperors became emperor by this process of adoption. So when Paul tells his readers in Romans 8, 15, and 23, and Ephesians 1, 5, that you have received the adoption, or that you've been predestined to the adoption as sons, it would have blown their minds. God saved me fine I can almost imagine that but God put me and brought me in as a permanent adult member of his family that's shocking not just adopted but you remain continually accepted and that means if you are accepted by him you have been made acceptable by him and that by the working of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.6 tells us to the pray, uh, sorry, let's just go back to five. Having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Remember when you were filling out your college applications or maybe you were applying to your first job and you find out that you were accepted? Do you ever have the opportunity to sit down with a group of friends or a group of people, rather, that you didn't know, and you didn't know whether they would accept you or reject you, and they, they did, they accepted you? You were brought into that friend group or circle or whatever? That feeling of acceptance is it's a good feeling. And the, your acceptance by God the Father is your permanent status. You're always welcome, if you'd like at the table with him because of what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven all trespasses. Colossians 1.14, again, this, this idea that now trespasses is different from sins and that sin has the idea of an action that misses the mark. Trespass has the idea of being in the wrong place. And you've been forgiven all of your trespasses in Jesus Christ. See, there was no way we were going to get through this whole handout. That's why I gave you the whole handout. So we're just going to fly through the last of these, uh, not fly, but, but move quickly. You were made close to God while you were far from God. Ephesians 2.13 is, and the whole, whole of chapter 2, specifically after verse 11, is focused on Paul explaining to the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers that, that while the wall was a wall of division between them, and while the Gentiles were aliens to the covenant and to the history and all, all the working of God, that in Christ God had made the two into a new temple, a new body, and now you who were far off from God were now drawn near and drawn close to God. I want you to note that he's the one who draws you near. He's the one who makes you close. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, 
You were far off from God. We were far off from God because our sin made it so. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are forever made near and drawn close to him. Here we go. We're delivered from the power of darkness. And both of these, uh, this point and the next one, are related to uh, Colossians 1, 13. It says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his love. So on one side, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Do you realize what that means? That everybody else, every person born into the sinful world is a slave to this system, to this world system, to deceive and to manipulate. You can rage against it or fight against it, but either way, you're totally enslaved to it until you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And at that point, you are delivered from the power of darkness and the deception of this world. And I hope I'm not the only one, but then again, I hope I am. That sometimes lets this world, whether it's the politics of this world, the news, whether it's the things that get me just so mad or make me just so happy, and I forget, I've been delivered. You've been delivered from the powers of darkness in this world. And instead, you've been translated, you've been brought into the kingdom. And you say, but the kingdom's not yet. That's exactly right. You are a new creature. You are a part of the new heavens and new earth. But your home, your citizenship, as we'll see in just a moment, is in the kingdom of God. And so your position in the king makes you a part of that kingdom program. You are the only representation for the kingdom of God that most people will see. Unless they meet the king in person. By faith through grace. So you're translated out of this world you're freed from the deception of this world does that mean that this world can't impact us no does that mean that the darkness can't oppress us no it means that the darkness can't control us we can choose to see through the lies of the enemy and know his schemes not only that you are built on the rock christ jesus first corinthians 3 11 for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is in Christ, or in Jesus Christ, rather. You are built on the strong foundation of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 likewise gives this message. You are a gift from God the Father to Christ John, uh, Jesus in his prayer, in his high priestly prayer on his way to the cross, prayed and recognized that believers are given by the Father to him. And John 10, 29, he assures that those who are given to the Father, or given to Jesus by the Father, excuse me, given to Christ by the Father are his possessions. I still have treasured gifts that my father gave me. Little treasures, trinkets, and memories that I'd never forget. And that is how Jesus Christ views you as a gift from his father unto himself. And Jesus Christ takes care of his things. We find that we're circumcised in Christ, that uh, we are the true circumcision. Circumcision is about marking. It's about being marked for God. In Jesus Christ, you are spiritually and permanently marked with a mark that will never go away, that will never decay, and that while it might not be physically evident, is spiritually evident to the entire heavens and earth and all the powers and principalities. You are marked in a way that makes a greater eternal difference than any physical tattoo or surgery could ever do so. You are made a part of his holy and royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9 and Revelation 1, 6. You are a chosen generation as I considered these verses in 1 Peter 2, 9 and Titus 2, 14. I wanted to note this is related to the idea of your second birth, your new birth. Do you realize there are no second generation Christians? It's kind of odd to think, right? We think of ourselves maybe as coming from a line. Maybe your parents, your grandparents, and your great-great-grandparents were all believers, and that's wonderful, but you're not their spiritual grandchildren. 
There's only one generation that comes forth from Jesus Christ. Everyone has to be born again themselves based on their faith in Jesus Christ. So essentially, the way our spiritual family tree looks is that Jesus Christ was born again from the dead. It was raised from the dead. And anyone who places their faith in him from uh, Peter and the disciples and the apostle Paul all the way to the last believer who trusts in Christ seconds before the rapture is a first generation child of God. You are a chosen generation. You are always the next generation. We are all the next generation flowing directly forth from Jesus Christ. We have access to God. You can't just walk in and talk to the president. You can't just walk in and talk to any world leader. And yet, by Jesus Christ, we have constant access to the God of the universe. He tells us, he promises us that whenever we approach him in prayer, he hears and entertains our prayers. You are an object of his, uh, his, well, let's just go back and remember this because this is about what you have. It means in any situation, I I just, I do, I want to get you home before nine o'clock and I'll do that for you, but I can't pass this by. In any situation, you have direct access. You have a bat phone to the God of the universe. If you are oppressed or in trial or in struggle, you can immediately appeal appeal to the highest court in the universe and trust that your prayer has been heard. Which means if the trial continues, that you're suffering for the will of God. And it's a good thing. Because the one to whom you've appealed could take it away at a moment. You have constant access to God any day, any time. You are an object of his, now we have quite a few things. You're an object of his love. He is constantly lavishing his love upon you. He is constantly putting your best good, believe it or not, which is also to his glory, at the forefront of your life. That might not always mean that he'll get what, put what you want at the forefront of your life, but whatever happens, it will be worked together and used for your best good because you are an object of his love. You are an object of his grace. His overflowing, abundant, life-changing grace is constantly being poured out again uh, upon you in unspeakably, immeasurably large proportions whether you recognize it or not. You are an object of his power. He is using the power, and Ephesians 1.19 highlights the reality that all of the power that God exercised in raising Jesus Christ from the dead, he is constantly using to conform you unto his image because you were raised with him. You are an object of his faithfulness, and the Lord will not change his mind about his commitment to you ever, ever, ever. You are an object of his peace. Here, not peace in terms of of lack of conflict, but you are an object of his peace in terms of the wholeness and fullness of Jesus Christ provided for you in every single moment. You are an object of his comfort that the God who loves you and died for you also suffers with you and cries with you. And when you're persecuted or hurt, then all those who do that will hear along with Saul. Why do you persecute me? So close is his identification with you. So great is the comfort of his love. You are the object of his care. First Peter 5, 7, you cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He's made you and taken you and I to be and me to be his responsibility. And you are the object of his intercession. Jesus Christ and God the Holy Spirit intercede before the Father on your behalf. Think about that. You ever blush a little bit when you find out someone was talking about you? Especially if it's in a positive light. Have you ever, you know, heard someone famous say your name in in a public setting? You go, ooh, that must be important. You realize that there's conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and your name comes up. 
shocking, isn't it? Easy to blow by. But you're on God's mind. Why? Well, because you're his inheritance. He has made you and called you his inheritance. Do you think he'd care for his inheritance? Of course he does. But not only that, he is our inheritance, and he has given us an inheritance in his son, Jesus Christ. Oops. Peter. We find that we are heavenly citizenship citizens. In Christ you have been given heavenly citizenship. You know, uh, I've traveled and, and it's kind of nice being an American citizen. Being an American citizen gets you into places that it can be very difficult to get into from other places. It can be very difficult to get into America with certain citizenships that, for whatever reason, are suspect. Having a good citizenship is a great thing. It also means that you have protections whenever you're where you are because whoever it is that wants to harm you. In fact, there's a horrifying and sad case many years ago about a boy who went to a young man well, let's just call it what it is, a young idiot who went to Singapore and uh, committed some acts of uh, destruction there and was caught. He'd obviously done it. He'd messed things up. He'd, become, he'd committed a criminal act, but the trouble was in Singapore. <laughs> the punishment was caning. This isn't a spanking. This is a, a big, big stick with an adult man, a trained professional, just to whack you a lot. And while all of us in America said, hit him with the stick! He deserves it! What an idiot! The kid got off at at least half punishment just because they didn't feel comfortable fully punishing someone who was a citizen of another country. He did the crime. He deserved it. That was the, the just punishment. Because of that citizenship, he had different treatment. Do you realize... That even though you might be an American citizen, a Korean citizen, a Canadian citizen, happy Canada Day, everyone, by the way, um, or anything else, that your citizenship's in heaven? We're coming up on a day when we will wave flags and rightly say that we're proud to be American and God bless America and pray for our nation, and well, we should. But do you realize that your heavenly citizenship is an eternal citizenship? And you will be a citizen of the first order in the kingdom of heaven long after the strains of the national anthem of the United States of America have ceased to ring in the universe. You are a citizen of heaven. Learn about the culture of your homeland, which you've yet to be. Uh, visit. You are a part of the family of God. We looked at this in terms of you're being a child of God, but now you're a part of the family of God, and that's involving the church. That's one of your great resources, whether you choose to rely on it or not. And that's one of the sad things is that most of us are connected to or possibly connected to a church, but we wouldn't want to tell, tell anybody that we're weak or that we're having a problem, that we need help. And so we don't utilize the great resource of being a part of the family of God, but you are. You're blessed with the Holy Spirit. This is one that we couldn't come to the end of in any number of studies, but just to say that the ministries of the Holy Spirit are constantly working in you, whether you feel them or not, available to you, whether you're conscious of them or not, and as you walk by means of the provision of the Holy Spirit, you'll find that you have everything you need to face every situation which the Lord will place in front of you. You're sealed by that Holy Spirit, and he's not going anywhere. You're permanently indwelt and such as such. You're complete in him. The word here is teleos. It means you're whole, you're full, you're completely mature, you're made, you're finished in him. And you say, but I don't feel very finished. It's because you're growing in your experience. But as far as God's concerned, it's a finished issue. And for our final point that we'll look at today in this list, is that you are a possessor of every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you know what that means? Think about that for a minute. That is a very important meaning. It means that you can't ask God for a spiritual blessing that he hasn't already given you. 
as Watchman Nee wrote, and I think it would be wise for us all to remember, if we only knew what we'd already been given in Jesus Christ, we wouldn't have time to ask God for everything, anything, but would only have time to praise him for what he's already given us in his son. It's yours. And so we ask him for patience. We ask him for peace. We ask him for comfort. We ask him for hope. We ask him for encouragement. We ask him for a sense of purpose. And he said, yes, I've given it. Yes, I've given it. Yes, I've given it. Look at the documentation. Look at what's been given. Only then can you rewrite the lies of this world. Only then can you know what's been done for you in Jesus Christ. Always. So, if you could take just a few things from our uh, time together tonight. I hope you have confidence in what you, you got. Wow. What a rough grammar moment. I was evidently under the gun as I got to my last slide. In what you got. Yeah, because I'm from the block. You are a new creation. Be confident. You are. Be confident that you have the perfect provision of the word of God, the title deed to every one of the spiritual blessings which God has laid before you, the truth in spite of all the errors and lies, the, the, the very information, the mind of God unfolded before you in order to let you know what is his character, his provision, and his will for you in every situation. You have the word of God, and you can and must live in confidence that the word of God is true, and every man a liar, and every other uh, worldview and supposition and presupposition and idea is a falsehood. You have have the word of God, the word of truth, the sword of the spirit constantly before you. And so you can live in confidence because the ever shifting sand of world perception and the ideas of man and the philosophies and directions and goals of fallen man and the values of fallen man all shatter before you because you have the truth. And all you need to do to live in confidence is have confidence in what the Lord has revealed. You have the Holy Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity has taken up residence inside of you on the bad days, on the good days, on the right days, on the wrong days, on the days that you wish you could just close your eyes and fall asleep forever. You have the Spirit of God working in you empowering you, comforting you, guiding you, teaching you, anointing you, preparing you for every good work. You have the Spirit of God that hovered over the waters and energized this very creation dwelling within you right now. So you can live with confidence. You have the family of God surrounding you. Not just Fort Collins Bible Church, but the universal collection of everyone who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ throughout all eternity. You have the body of Christ motivated by the working of Christ surrounding you in all things. You have the family of God. Be involved. Make use of it. Trust. Be confident in what you've been given. And oh, by the way, you have everything else you need for life and godliness. The mission is impossible. Accept that he's already done it and given it all to you freely by his grace in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You have no reason to lack confidence in any situation, in any time, in any moment, ever. And if you ever come to the sense that you do, 
you feel as if you lack confidence. Recognize that you've only tried to find confidence where it never was, in yourself. And go back and take confidence in the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we praise you and we thank you that we can live with confidence. You have given us a new identity. You have positioned us in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have saved us and given us everything that we need for life and godliness. You have given us your word. You have given us your spirit. You have given us your son. You have given us the body of Christ, the church. You have given us all. Might we live trusting in you, confident that whatever this world might have and whatever tomorrow might hold, we've placed our destiny in you and in the hands that hold all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray.